Like, just to let you know, like, I'm just some dude in his room, came from an apolitical background. I just happened to, for some goddamn reason, read Capital. And I got into, like, Marx that way. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the typical story. Hello, and welcome to the 98th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Sunday, 9th of June, 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. This week, we talked to Kevin, Chris, and Jason of the Regrettable Century podcast about their experience spending 10 years in the Marxist sect, the ISO, before leaving a number of years ago. This follows on from an episode of their podcast where they talk about the recent demise of that organisation. This is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be the inaugural Patreon-only episode. So if you like what you hear, why not sign up as a patron for only $5 a month or $1 an episode. Speaking of patrons, this week I have the new patron Parker McQueenie to thank. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the interview. I have a question for you, for you guys. One is, how old are you? And two is, so two questions. And two is, how the hell did you get into the ISO? This is Kevin. I'm uh, 34 years old. And I joined the ISO uh, back in Texas where Jason and Chris and Jenny, who's also on the Regrettable Century podcast, uh, had founded the chapter at the University of North Texas uh, in um, a small town north of Dallas, Texas, uh, the small college town up there where uh, where I had started going to school. So that's how I, I got into ISO. Well, uh, I'm Chris. I'm 37. And we actually had been, Jason and I had been members of the ISO previous to moving to Denton. And when we got to Denton, we started an independent socialist group. And we ended up, I think, getting about 10, 12 members, something like that. And then deciding that we wanted to affiliate to the ISO just for the sake of having the resources of the organization. And we, we still pretty much, like for the most part, agreed with what the ISO stood for. So yeah, we did that. But you, the way we originally came to the ISO was just by going to anti-war protests. And I think this was probably like 2003. And uh, they were the probably the most organized and prominent people that was involved in the anti-war protests in Austin. What, what size was the ISO, say, at that time? Roughly, any the figure of the ISO stays pretty static despite pretty constant recruitment for like that whole decade there were like a few hundred people by around the time we happened across the group because there was something of a collapse of the american left in hard numbers uh just across the board after 9-11 and like this whole you know when the global justice ralph nader ups general strike abortive attempt at a labor party all the stuff that kind of characterized the late 90s that all came to a halt you know with 9-11 and the bush presidency so by the Iraq War, their numbers are kind of swinging back up, but it's in like the low to mid hundreds, mid hundreds. And by the time I left the group in 2015, there was about 
eight nine hundred, and that that number had been pretty solid for years by that point. Right, I'd say the better part of a decade they'd stayed right around eight hundred yeah. members. So would that be one of the bigger sects in America at the time? Uh, the oh, biggest yeah, by by leaps and bounds at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean the biggest. Yeah, I mean the the Socialist Workers Party the, that had existed since the nineteen forties probably had about eighty people at the time. That would be the range, somewhere between 80, 80 and, and 900, with the ISO being the only ones at the top end, at that time anyways. Right, and I think that the DSA at that point, which I, don't, I really don't know how they characterized their membership back then. I mean, how you could characterize their membership back then, because I know they've always had a lot of paper members, but they, they were probably bigger than us just because of the paper membership. And the CPUSA, also the same thing, just lots of members that just sent in their dues and signed up on a piece of paper and then you never heard from again. Right. And very, very low dues as well. Like an extremely low barrier to entry. Whereas like ISO to be a member, it was like minimum $20 a month plus a uh, very demanding on your time. And they would like declare you not a member whenever you became inactive sort of thing. Whereas like DSA or, uh, or CPUSA, those probably had larger membership numbers, but the, it was something like, uh, $60 a year for membership dues, and then there's zero demand on you as an individual to be a member other than just paying your dues, period. So how many how many hours a week are we talking here? In the ISO? Oh, man. Well, let's see. We had our, our weekly meeting, which was supposed to be two hours, but often ended up longer than that. And then we always would go out afterwards and it was you know under the guise of hanging out but it was really trying to recruit people that we uh, invited out to hang out with us afterwards so it was about you know four hours on a thursday night plus we had our our fraction meetings which would be whatever movement work we were involved in and you had to be involved in one and uh generally those meetings would be the same amount of amount of time spent like two three hours and then you would have to organize you would have pre-fraction meetings where you would meet with the other people that were in your fraction about the interventions you were going to make in your fraction work. So that's probably another hour on top of that. On top of the once a week paper sales that we did, which were about an, you know a couple hours minimum. And that was the minimum that you were supposed to do is once a week, sometimes two, three, if you could. On top of that, if you were in leadership, like pretty much all of us were in and out of leadership the whole time we were in the branch. You had another... You had other committee meetings. I, God, man, I don't know. I'd say like a pretty good average would be a minimum of like 15 hours a week spent in the ISO, like doing ISO stuff. Yeah, that's like a part-time job where you had to pay to do it. (laughs) It's a real proper sect. I mean, by comparison at the time and even today still, the DSA, you count as a member if you pay dues once and you can be arrears in dues for two years, I think before you're taken off the rolls and you don't ever have to show up to anything once in your whole tenure as a member. So, you know, like the, some pretty huge extreme polar opposites when it comes to like what it means to have an organization. How long did you guys stay in it then? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> um, I joined the <laughs> ISO in 2004 and I, uh, I formally kind of left at the, um, sort of the end of 2015, but really kind of dropped out of activity. It kind of went on like a hiatus sabbatical, whatever, in like 2014. So about 10 years 
in in real terms, eleven years, I guess. It's about nine for me. I, I think about the same length of time as the two of y'all. Maybe a little bit, little bit short because I think y'all were in ISO before I joined it. But I think I was drifting away around the same time as y'all. Before we go any further, just back to the paper sales. How many papers would you sell in a few hours? <laughs> like, would people actually buy them? That's a really good question. I remember it was rare when I had a paper sale without selling a single copy of it. And sometimes we would probably sell a, a good handful when there's like, you know, the start of the semester and new students are showing up and they're like, oh, what is this? And they'll come up and talk to you and buy a paper just to sort of like for the novelty of it, you know? I think that the most we ever sold at one time was about 40. And that was right I don't remember what was going on at the time, but it was during the Obama election when, you know, Fox News and everyone else was, it was the first Obama election in 2008 when uh, everyone was calling Obama a socialist in the conservative media. So you had a, the, the buzz about socialism was out and around for the first time in a very long time. So you had people who were just like socialism. Sure, that's what the, the guy that I'm voting for uh, is being called. So I guess, sure, I'll check it out. And that was probably about, there were th about three or four paper sales in the middle of, like right before the election, where we sold, you know, 20, 30, 40 papers. But generally, we'd sell about five, six at most. Yeah, it would always be kind of heightened, um, like be greater numbers whenever there was something uh, like really significant happening in the moment. Like I remember when, when the IDF launched a kind of a semi-invasion into Lebanon and you know, Hezbollah beat them back and like that day that it was in the news. We had like a milk crate. This is in Austin, Texas. So this is like, what, 2006? We had like a milk crate set up on the street corner and we had like protest signs and we kind of had like a buzz around it. Right in front of John Cornyn's office, I think yeah, it was, Yeah, because he was right? a senator from Texas who was like, you know, like every senator in the United States, big pro-Israel guy. And, you know, at moments like that, you would be like every single person walking by would be interested in talking to us and a couple of people would buy papers or like during occupy chicago you know we would just like hold up a newspaper and somebody would walk we didn't even, we wouldn't even have to talk to them they would just walk up and want to buy it the presumption of course is that each paper sold is a contact name written down and a potential relationship to establish but really the reality is that like selling the paper often just meant well now the paper's sold and because when you have like so much pressure to do it it the actual function, like the whole thing it's supposed to do, which is facilitate a conversation, really kind of gets sidelined. Right. How would it get sidelined? Well, I don't have like a really scientific way to approach it, but it would seem, it seems to me just from reflecting backward that, um, you know, because the desired result is a sold paper and a contact signed and a future arrangement to like meet up and talk politics the easiest one in that situation is to just put the newspaper in somebody's hands. And so that's the one that you end up kind of focusing the most on. And, you know, whenever you have some kind of person in in a position of junior leadership or whatever, who's trying to make an assessment of how well the branch is doing, one of the healthiest indicators of a branch supposedly is sold papers. So you get this very like planned economy under Brezhnev kind of like, you know, meet the targets and like order more papers and sell more papers. <laughs> Yeah. Presumably, that just makes the conversations happen. But the political training isn't really, wasn't really such that the papers sold equated to contacts made. Not really. So, do you want to guys go through why you ended up leaving? I think 
I left the sect first. I had been, I was in graduate school at the time. And, uh, you know, it's very hard to find time to do anything when you're in graduate school. And I was taking a full graduate course load on top of foreign language courses that were extra and was incredibly stressed out about everything at all times and going through a divorce, which was interesting. But um, I was showing up to these meetings and it was during our convention, se- our pre-convention season where we were discussing the things that are going to happen, the things that we're going to vote on at, at the convention. And it seemed as though the positions, the new positions that the ISO was taking on a bunch of issues, uh, namely among them being the orientation that we were going to take towards issues of identity politics, were sort of being just very cynically changed, like all of a sudden, where we had taken the position for years and years and years that we were not feminists and identity politics are bad, you know, you didn't need feminism because you had Marxism and Marxism is already feminism scored. So you didn't really have to worry about the whole inclusion of a separate thing called feminism. They just sort of did it an about face on all of those things. They're like, oh, well, actually, now we're going to take issues of identity. Uh, we're going to talk about those more. We're going to rewrite some of the books that we wrote, castigating these ideas and, you know, I guess, backwrite them to make them just put a better face on things. It just seemed very like a very cynical kind of manipulative way to to change the way that the the ISO looked from the outside without really doing anything to to address the concerns of people who were attracted to identity politics in the first place. So it, it seemed really cynical and really sort of just like, uh, well, we'd better change change the drapes so that the, the facade like, you know, looks a little bit better and we can continue to keep drawing people into the organization. And that was kind of, you know, disgusting to me. And I just kind of fell out after that. Who would make this decision to just totally change stuff and actually rewrite old books? They they put it to us all in the form of uh, like resolutions that everyone would vote on. But the way that these the, these kind of sects work is that the the people at the top their opinions have an enormous amount of weight. So that any positions that are coming from the you know the the steering committee are almost always just going to be like rubber stamped through and. That's basically the resolutions were coming out of the, the, the central committee, the steering committee, about uh, the, the way that we were going to change our orientation and the way we wanted to change our orientation. And there was, you know, a pretty good amount of justification written in these resolutions, and we would all talk about them. And of course, with very little real debate on the subject, things just kind of got pushed through. Well, yeah, specifically because the organizationally, you move ahead you you gain status and position in in the organization by parroting the official line on things which the official line is whatever the leadership body uh, says it is and if you cause any problems by not towing the party line then you get sidelined organizationally you get squeezed out so it, it created this internal culture of sort of organization wide posturing of individuals posturing members posturing for each other to demonstrate how how much they adhere to the party line and it did not create an atmosphere that where dissent of any sort was ever tolerated or permitted Um, there wasn't ever any real discussion of issues it was just like 
sort of rehearsal and practice by members like you know how well are am i articulating the party line here you know and people sort of trying out ways of repeating what they've been told to adopt for me personally my that that was a major part of why i i drifted away over time i felt like uh I, similar to chris i had the the core group of us back in texas who were making iso function back there had all sort of moved away to different things going on in our lives different jobs or or grad school i i moved to portland oregon to go to to law school uh, I was in law school, and so that took up a lot of my time. I wasn't able to be as involved in ISO out here, but I was still a member. But just over time, with without being as actively engaged in it, I found that I was just increasingly frustrated with the divergence between what you know the organization claimed it valued, uh, such as freedom of debate and democracy and uh, engagement with the real world and finding and meeting people where they actually were versus the actual practice of the organization where debate wasn't actually tolerated, where uh, where there was just a dogmatic sort of repetition of the party line, no matter what the real world conditions were, no matter what where the rest of people that I was engaging with in the world were actually um, functioning. And uh, I just got tired of being in the basically like a little study group that was reading the same books over and over and over again. And I was like, you know, I've, I've read these. Thanks for the education, guys. But this is just isn't a good home for me anymore. Uh, I wanted to be able to engage in a, a world that seemed to me outside of ISO to be increasingly hospitable to the ideas of Marxism and socialism. M meanwhile, ISO, I felt maintained its position of being isolated and sort of turning away from the rest of the world. That That's more or less the way I would sum it up, too. I mean, I think the first thing is that, like, in most cases, we're talking about social pressures that are informal in terms of the dynamics of, like, officially you're allowed uh, and encouraged to debate, dissent, argue things out. But informally, it actually really matters that you don't do it too much. My own experience is similar to Kevin's, especially that like during the last few years, really ever since Occupy Wall Street, I had been more and more kind of convinced that the world around us was changing and opening up and becoming more hospitable. And in my mind, the purpose of a cadre group was always to prepare for the opening and then to kind of like melt into whatever larger formations there were in order to like help provide leadership or whatever delusions we had. And then, you know, you'd have Shama Sawant, the first elected socialist in uh, Seattle, and then the Bernie Sanders moment, and just sort of different things that indicated over the years, like, oh, I really have have it right here, that the group has outlived its usefulness, no matter however generous you might be about, you know, what its function was in the 1980s and 90s, you know, darker times for socialism. And then, you know, the group collapsed under the weight of all kinds of internal inefficiencies and contradictions. And we've seen that happen with the SWP in the UK and a bunch of other places. So I don't know, it's, it's kind of sucks to be right. But on the other hand, it kind of feels good because uh, life inside a sect is a uh, terrible. It's pretty toxic. Yeah, I'm still I'm still unlearning everything I was trained to think and do, you know. In these votes that you would say would come down, were they open votes or were they private votes? Uh, there was an annual convention where you each branch or whatever would have delegates being sent to the convention, and it, th there would be open open votes for everything. In every branch meeting and every convention, 
in in every setting where there's a vote, it was always a, a show of hands. Yeah, it was done the the Robert Roberts Rules of Order method of voting and with a visible show of hands. So that's obviously pretty toxic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it turns out. It turns out. <laughs> so I'm surprised, guys. How did you last that long? <laughs> It's ten goddamn years. I know. Well, for me, I you know this. I, I this is actually so. Jason earlier made the point that the ISO really existed in Texas because there was a, a sort of a core of people making it a, a core of us really making it exist. We were kind of isolated in a sort of desert, and we made the ISO where we were a lot more inclined toward the realities of like openness and democracy and taking votes and you know as a group following the dictate of the vote whatever the vote is and it was a bit more of a healthy environment i think because the core of us were were running it and then uh when we all sort of scattered to the winds subsequently we it no longer was that for us uh i think partially for me i was in it so long because i felt the weight of the rationale that is I cared a lot about the world and I cared a lot about my sort of ideas about how the how change happens and I felt the weight of the the duty the obligation to uh, do my part in trying to make the world a better place and I didn't see a better alternative that existed cuz like uh, somebody was saying earlier uh, ISO was the biggest organization biggest marxist or, uh, organization that really existed at that time and I kept convincing myself that, you know, maybe th there's these flaws in this organization, but we can, if we organize well, we can or organize to improve this organization. It proved itself to not be open to reform, so. Yeah. The, okay, the question was how, did we, how and why did we last that long? Um, <laughs> I think it's a good one. Uh, at the time... Uh, for one, I, for a long period, for all of my adult life until I left the ISO, I was just very much a true believer. You know, I was, I guess, you know, over there you encounter these people sometimes. They also have a newspaper called Socialist Worker and you talk to them and they've got really well-rehearsed arguments and political line. But I was always also a dissenter um, in the sense that I always kind of thought that because I was a true believer and thought like, you know, the, the group was healthier maybe than it was, that there was always an opportunity uh, and a space for it to become a better version of itself. And everywhere I looked around, I would encounter people in smaller, weirder, l less yeah. intellectually curious, more dogmatic groups that were also just, you know, like super off-putting. And I, I, every single time I thought, what, what does life outside this group look like? And it looked like either not being active in anything, or at least not in, a, in an environment in which class was a part of the discussion. Because this is a hard thing to kind of, I think, to really explain to people outside the U.S. is that you didn't even hear the word class, even in like left activist, anti-globalization, anti-corporate, anti-whatever movement spaces, you wouldn't hear class come up. And if it did, it was like, you know, don't talk about class. Like that's like, there wasn't, there wasn't a space for that. Even socialism was taboo. It, you, you could talk about being anti-capitalist, but if you said the words like socialism was taboo. Yeah. Um, right. It really took, actually for me, I, uh, I left the States for a while. I like, got rid of everything I owned. I bought like, a one-way ticket to Europe, and I 
like worked and whatever. That's not that's not the important thing. The important thing is I encountered people on the European left in different countries. And I got a real sense that like, oh, I actually come from a terrible, toxic, narrow-minded, very low horizons movement. And that's when I like formally left. For me, it was just that it, it really was the best of the left in the United States at the time. It was like the other organizations that we would come across would be uh, I don't know, like Orthodox Trotskyist organizations who were so dogmatically Trotskyist, and they, they like, I mean, they would quote Lenin and Trotsky and Marx, like, like Bible, like the way that Christians quote Bible verses, like evangelicals quote Bible verses, and it just seems so strange and just wow. At least we know how to relate to people, and compared to them, we did. Yeah, you know, the, the other groups were Stalinist groups and Maoist groups who were just by comparison, just insane. We seemed really healthy compared to the, <laughs> compared to the rest of the, the American left. And, or anarchists and just totally incapable of accomplishing anything. Right, which, I mean, yeah, absolutely. There was that. And, you know, it, it always seemed like things would get better. You know, when the organization would be growing, we'd have a lot more people at our yearly uh, conference, you know. And it would seem like things were starting to open up and we'd have people from different organizations representing their organization at our conference. And, and I was like, Oh, I can see a, I can see a point where sometime in the near future, we're going to like throw this thing wide open and start, you know, making open alliances with other socialist groups. And maybe we can actually get to the point where we're talking about forming a workers party one day, you know, but then the longer I stayed in it, the more I saw it as just a cycle of rinse and repeat. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like it, I, I felt, I felt that the best of the organization was on display at socialism and if you could make it through the socialism conference is what it was called. And if you could make it through to the next socialism conference, it would help like rinse away the demoralization and, and give you the, the fortitude to make it through to the next one. And you know, that got old, <laughs> and, but really, I mean, I, I was a true believer. I, uh, you know, I was, I was a total cliffite, but I had a bunch of suppressed tendencies that I had left over from just my, my upbringing that were sort of butting up against my, cliffism that eventually uh, I was able to let loose once I quit the ISO and I'm very happy about that. So explain to me what you mean by you're a true Sorry, cliffhide. Before, before we do that, I want, can I add one more comment about sticking around? Just to, just to balance this a little bit. Because one of the things, and I think this is probably generally true for people, not just from the ISO, but probably more generally people who had dedicated a lot of their lives to a small socialist group is that, you know, there, we were instrumentally involved in things that did matter. Yes, that is true. There are people who, um, innocent people saved from death row, not entirely, but partially due to contributions made that were organized through the group I was in. It introduced me to my, recruited me and introduced me to my first trade union and brought me to my first picket line to support another union real world struggles where real you know life and death battles where people's lives can be improved or can be degraded on the basis of the outcome those were the kinds of things that i think really actually kept us involved yeah that's really, really in defiance point. of the of the environment of the closed group environment it was the outward connection to things that really mattered and and i think that's important first of all to be generous to ourselves but second to understand that it wasn't until that became more generalized across the country 
that it became so easy for people to break from the sect because oh now i can be involved in things that really matter as a socialist in an open way with organization with other people but it also is healthier and feels good because those are all those ingredients together right. were necessary i think to really shatter this thing so who said they were a true cliffite was that was that jason no it was chris that was me Chris, sorry, sorry, the voices are so similar. <laughs> All Americans. Literally, sound I the can't same. tell the difference. Well, yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, like I tell Kev because he, because he, yeah. he kind of, you know, he's got an Irish name. There's probably still a slight <laughs> bit of like, I don't know where the fuck, where the fuck the K's from, you know, know Tipperary or something. Um, sorry, but yeah. like, do you want to talk about the cliff yeah, yeah. thing and what you mean by that? Because a lot of people who aren't in the sect world. They might have heard of Tony Cliff, but they don't know what that means. Okay, just, I mean, you can sum up that the basis of Cliffite Trotskyism or Third Camp Trotskyism with, with a, the neither Washington nor Moscow slogan. So the, the Cliffites believe that the Soviet Union was a, was a state capitalist economy and a bureaucratic dictatorship. And it did not represent socialism at all after, I, it depends on who you talk to within the organizations, but after some point in the 1920s. And that socialism must come from below and must be organized, and socialist economy and the socialist government must be organized from below. So if it's not a system of workers' councils, then it's not socialism. There, you know, there are a bunch of sort of peripheral positions that the Cliffites take as well. But I, I would say that those, those are the major ones, really, that China is not socialist, Cuba is not socialist. Really, there was only the, the first few years of the Russian Revolution were the, the only place that you could look to as an example of true socialism. Uh, would, you, would you guys say that's, that's yeah, right? Yeah, I think. How about Spain? What do you say on Spain? I think the official line on Spain was that was a aborted revolution that was ultimately, obviously, it was the fascist fault. But second to the fascists would be the communists for breaking up working class organization. And then third in line for blame was the anarchists for having a working class organization and hegemony, but uh, an unwillingness to like take and wield power. And then fourth in line for blame would be all the other non-Trotskyist independent socialists who, you know, and whatever. Yeah, <laughs> that's I think that's what they would say. The poem for breaking with Trotsky uh, prematurely, because you're not supposed to have broken with Trotsky until 1940. Until really Cliff. until until 1940. Yeah, it's not. Until, first of all, it's not until after Trotsky's dead. That's when you break with Trotsky. Impo- importantly. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, it's so it's funny. I was I was going to say it's just like the way that the, these groups have the way that they act toward their existing leaders. You know, so Trots, Trotsky's a defender of the USSR in a sort of critical way up until his death. He refers to it as a degenerated worker state. And so then after he's after he dies and after the Second World War and you know when the Cold War sets in and rather than being shaken and reformed or changed in some way by the experience the Soviet Union under Stalin just kind of in in the, this is in the Tony the Cliffist, you know, the IS view, the international socialist tendencies view of things uh extends its power across Eastern Europe. And, and it is able to even be replicated independently in places like China and whatever, that it proves itself to be a, a new kind of class society rather than a kind of weird liminal space in between. You know, the way that Trotsky described it, it would be like either it would f- 
fall backward into full-fledged capitalism or it would have to roll forward into, you know, healthy working class control, you know, true socialism. But at some point it becomes obvious that it's a society that is, uh, it is challenging global capitalism for power, but it's not producing what it is that socialists have historically fought for. And so it's obviously a, a new development of a of a kind of class society that I guess they they landed on state capitalism, but there was a debate about is it a new class society? Is it is it just capitalism with like a you know bureaucratic sort of collective ruling class above it? Or but essentially that's the that's the new thing that defines the like post Trotskyist or the post Trotsky Trotskyism. It sort of evolved out of the uh, bureaucratic collectivism versus degenerated worker state debate and uh, end, ends up with state capitalism being a nice, clean, easy way to sum up what this, the Soviet Union was to the, to the Cliffites. And that would have been where the state takes on the role of capitalist exploiter and extractor of surplus value instead of the individual firms or private capitalists. I want to say this too, that I could see why this might have mattered a lot to people in the 1950s. Or in the 1980s, yeah. even, you know, like I, I can at least I can, I can rationalize it. But I remember, you know, in the 2010s encountering people that would ask, like, why does this matter anymore? And uh, the, the kind of answer that we would have, which would never really felt satisfactory was, well, because, you know, it's about trying to this is about the kind of world we want to see. Right. So we don't want to be partisans for this particular set of mistakes and errors or whatever. And looking back, that's such a like profoundly idealist way of understanding things. Like, oh, I imagine it to be something that could be good instead, and so therefore it will be. Like that distinction mm-hmm. of like the kind of Trotskyist you are really like it becomes utterly meaningless in the wake of the you know, from the nineteen nineties onward, at least. That's the way I see it now. How did you guys square the circle of this idea of socialism from below when the party was the exact opposite in reality (laughs) uh uh, what we call it is intellectual gymnastics cognitive dissonance i think (laughs) it's called it's called casuistry i believe but like seriously like like did you never like sit down together and go ah lads what's going on here well, I mean, the, the facade of democracy was there, you know, I mean, like, you could make whatever intervention you wanted, and you could get it second, you, you could get a proposal seconded and turn it into a resolution and put it forward. And, you know, it looked like it looked democratic from the outside. You it there was a there was a very a healthy culture of uh, laughing away criticisms of, of rule by force of personality or anything like that. Like a black humor. Yeah, I mean, it would just be like, oh, yeah, if you think that the ISO is guilty of groupthink or, you know, rule by force of personality, just come to one of our conventions and see how divisive and fractious and, you know, sort of just argumentative the the thing could be. I mean, so it kind of did look like from the outside, like, like it was democratic. But if, you know, being removed from it, hindsight is twenty twenty. I could definitely see how it absolutely was not. And we wanted to believe that it was democratic, so we did. Well, compared to the actual amount of participation that a, a person is is used to in like civil life in the modern Republican society like ours, it was. 
you know, like it did actually encourage you to to do and think and to take ownership of things relative to your actual life where participation is limited to a very narrowly defined set of like sort of pseudo choices every four years or so. Right. Like we don't have like the chaps who fancy pigeons, like get two votes and have representation in parliament. You know, we have (laughs) nothing like that, you know, that's what's missing. That's what's (laughs) missing. The thing that it did is it, it encouraged you, you know, to kind of step out of the, uh, the confines of the way that you were trained to think about your engagement with the world, you know, by the society. But the problem is that it couldn't then deliver on... It's kind of like the way that when I was a child, my, my mother was like a very strict, super conservative Christian, but also wanted me to go to the library all the time. And at a certain point, those two things kind of butted up against each other, right? It was like I, I started developing ideas outside of the, the framework that I was allowed to have them. And so my experience inside of a, of a sect is pretty similar to that inside of a church as a child. It's funny you should mention that because I've written down one thing here just when we were chatting. It, it feels to me like when I when I hear you guys talking about it, it feels like the way you talk, how I kind of felt after like I became an atheist, you know, you feel like you've lost religion. <laughs> yeah. Is that an accurate description of how you feel about those 10 years? Yes and no. Yes, in, in, in the sense of having a crisis of faith and having had to sort of recalibrate or, you know, whatever, think about things in new terms. But no, in the sense that I don't think I consider myself an atheist anymore, like I did when I was a teenager and in my 20s or whatever. And I actually think that my religious upbringing has been the roots of my kind of humanism, of my, you know, even my what attracted me to socialism. It's all stuff from the Bible. I don't belong to any, I don't adhere to any particular faith now, but I just think having been taught to think in certain ways it hasn't really left um and i feel the same way about having been a part of this small weird uh increasingly weird organization it's like you know there's certain things i think will always be there so it's not a full rejection in the way that i think atheism would be right yeah i I was gonna say similarly i I can make the comparison very directly from in my own life because I, i you know i was raised in a very very strictly fundamentalist Christian uh, Protestant home. And I went through a process of, you know, losing my religion, losing my faith and leaving Christianity. That was a much more like fundamental break for me where I totally fundamentally reevaluated my entire worldview, the way I understood the world and myself and my place in the world, my relation to it how I understood what was right or wrong. Everything was just completely, utterly revolutionized uh, top to bottom. Whereas, you know, uh, sort of having this break with this organization that I was wedded to very closely, like Jason said, mirrored it in some ways. But the similarities were more, I think, in the... um, loss of a connection to a you know a sort of a social connection to other humans that were affiliated with this organization loss of a a sense of orientation in a sort of dizzying map of political ideologies that exist but it wasn't the sort of existential crisis that loss of religion was for me i you know i still broadly 
operated in the world along the same the same political values and that sort of thing. I just sort of lost connection to a very uh, specific political organization, you know? So I, I suppose it's similar, but much, much more narrow. Yeah, my loss of faith was traumatic for me. I didn't like it. I didn't like that I couldn't believe in God anymore whenever I first left the church and became a militant, annoying atheist. Um, <laughs> but like... You know, I have I have since become something else that doesn't really have a I guess a label for it. I guess you could pr- you could probably figure out a label, but I, I'm not. I don't want to talk about that really. But uh, are you a follower of the Elohim? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, <laughs> no. I, I would I would say that like my views of whether or not God exists and stuff like that are you know very non-theistic and somewhat amorphous but i don't i don't really know i don't really have like a solid view of what i think about spirituality and whatever else it's definitely it's definitely not militant i don't believe in god but i do believe in the devil (laughs) (laughs) no so but what i was saying is uh that like having left the iso i mean I, i didn't I didn't quit being a true believer in the the emancipatory power of the working class to free itself and humanity from the chains of class society or anything like that. I just kind of got very nihilistic about whether or not I cared, (laughs) you know, like I I was like, this is just it's too much. And I don't really think I I have uh, much of a place in this. And uh, so I'm just going to go my own way for a little while. And it wasn't like... it wasn't like a world altering thing. Like Kevin said, it was just more like, uh, maybe I'll fit, fit myself back into this puzzle somehow in the future. But as for right now, I'm just going to go solo. Yeah. I've a, I've a, a little story to tell you. It's just, just on the point you were making about the house of Lords or something. There was one Lord and he was, I don't think he'd ever turned up and he was just an Irish guy. And obviously his family must have fallen on hard times through the years and he was working as a butcher in a small town in Ireland. And he was officially a member. He was a peer of the British Empire. He was like, should have been sitting in the House of Lords. Oh, wow. I think he was actually getting paid and he'd never <laughs> gone. And he was just literally just a guy working in a butcher's shop <laughs> until like Tony Blair reformed the house. That's incredible. In like 1997 or something. And your man lost a seat. <laughs> just like he didn't like he didn't have a posh accent. He was just like some country bumpkin like myself or something, you know. That's amazing. Also, I, I didn't it never even occurred to me that Tony Blair did something good. <laughs> On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit and Swampside Chats.
Thank you.